All right, greetings to all of our campuses. We are so glad you are here. Uh, you know, it is so awesome to live in Colorado, isn't it? I mean, seriously, I mean, it's amazing to live in a place with such incredible beauty. Now, one of the things that I've noticed that can begin to happen when you live in Colorado for a while is that this incredible scenery can start to become sort of routine. I mean, we don't even really notice the mountains as we're driving on I-25 regularly, right? We can get so busy with life that we rarely take time to enjoy the beauty all around us. We can become so familiar with something awesome that it no longer inspires awe. It just becomes some, right? Uh, now, now, it's one thing when that happens geographically, but what about when it happens spiritually? What about when a believer in Jesus loses sight of how awesome Jesus really is? Where in the midst of the busyness of life, our passion for him begins to fade, our, our love for him begins to cool. I mean, that's a significant thing. It can lead to burnout, to a soul weariness, to a spiritual boredom or apathy, and none of us want that. None of us want to let life squeeze out this vision of who Jesus is. So last week, we started a new teaching series entitled Jesus Unexpected. Our heart in this series is for us to, to, to set aside what we think we know about Jesus and to put on a new pair of glasses to see him with, with clarity as if for the first time. Because seeing Jesus for who he really is will alter your perspective and transform the way you live your life. So, so where can we look to get a fresh, life-changing vision of who Jesus is? Well, there's a book in the Bible that is focused on this very thing. It's the book of Luke. Luke tells us in the first few verses of this book why he is writing this book. Verse 3, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I, too, decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, we learn here that Luke is writing this book primarily for non-Jews, for Gentiles who didn't grow up going to church, who aren't familiar with the synagogue and all that stuff, but who are wanting to discover and know who Jesus is. So, so Luke, who is a physician, decides to write an orderly, well-researched account of Jesus' life. And that's the document we have in our hands. And it's a document that can help us get a clearer vision of who Jesus really is. So if you have your Bible or your iPad or smartphone or, or whatever you happen to have there, feel free to turn to Luke chapter 2, which describes for us the birth of Jesus, God becoming a man. Now, Part of the challenge, part of the challenge in looking at this passage is that most of us have heard this story many, many times every Christmas, right? And we are fairly familiar with it, kind of like the mountains along I-25. And so in order for us to avoid the trap of familiarity, I want us to put ourselves for just a moment to put ourselves in the mindset of Theophilus, the guy for whom Luke wrote this book. Theophilus was a Greek, a non-Jew, who is learning about Jesus. So, what exactly did Greeks in that day believe about God? Well, we know from Greek mythology that they believed in many gods. And they believed that these gods controlled not only nature, but they also controlled the lives of, of humans. While they could, they could be nice at times, Greek gods were often volatile, unpredictable and full of human emotion like lust and anger and jealousy. 
These gods would occasionally condescend to humanity, but usually if they did, they did to just kind of mess with us, not to demonstrate any kind of altruistic desire to help us or, or to, to relate to us or care to or, or care for us. I mean, that, that was how Greeks viewed their gods. Powerful, distant, temperamental, certainly not loving. Do you ever feel that way about, about God? Do you ever feel like he's ready to zap you because you were drinking too much last weekend or, or, or he's not going to bless you because you cussed at your kids? Right? I mean, this, this view is not uncommon. That's how a lot of people today view God. Distant, judgmental, not loving. But is that what God is really like? Well, Luke chapter 2 answers this question for us in a way that would have been completely unexpected for any Greek reading these words. And perhaps a bit unexpected for us as well. In Luke chapter 2, we discover two totally unexpected characteristics of this Jesus. First is the humility of Jesus. The humility of Jesus. We know from chapter 1 that Mary is going to have a baby, a very special baby. As we saw last week, the angel Gabriel announces to her that this baby will be king forever, will be God in the flesh. So, when you think about God... Becoming a man, this king coming to earth as a baby, what one expects is the kind of welcome that royalty deserves. Prince William and Kate just had a baby girl. I mean, even though it was their second child, people camped out for days at the hospital to just to hear the to be the first ones to hear the news and hundreds of journalists from around the world were there to report it celebrations occurred worldwide i mean that's the kind of welcome we expect when royalty is born when a king is born well with that in mind let's look at how luke describes this birth verse 1 in those days caesar augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire roman world this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. <clears throat> Notice how Luke roots this account in specific historical detail. The governor of Syria, names the governor of Syria, the number of censuses taken. This is not written like Greek mythology. He is describing events rooted in history. And I'm, I'm guessing that Theophilus and other Greeks reading this would immediately notice this. This is not like Greek mythology. This is rooted in history, events that historical data corroborate. And in his description here, we see kings doing what we expect kings to do, right? Caesar Augustus, the most powerful man on, on the planet, he's sitting in his palace, he's issuing decrees, he's causing things to happen at the snap of his finger. So, in this context, how does this king of kings, this holy son of the most high God, how does he come to earth? Verse 4, so Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came near, came near for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Okay, so Joseph and Mary head to Bethlehem because Joseph belonged to the line of David. 
Luke is establishing the royal family line Jesus is going to be born into. And yet, the context and the circumstances surrounding his birth are completely unexpected. He's royalty, right? But there is no fanfare. There is no palace. In fact, Luke tells us that there was no room available for them in Bethlehem. They had no clout. They had no network. No finances to secure a nice suite at the Holiday Inn. The only place they could find to stay was a stable of some sort, a place reserved for animals. Imagine having a baby with the stench of manure in the air, the mixture of hay and dust, the sounds and smells of animals. And then the only place to place him was a feeding trough. No nurses or doctors attending, no mother-in-law to help, no sanitary wipes. A very crude entrance for the Son of God. In his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, Philip Yancey, um, he points out that on a, a, a visit by, a few years ago, but a visit by Queen Elizabeth to the United States, this visit from Queen Elizabeth included her bringing 4,000 pounds of luggage, two outfits for every occasion, 40 pints of plasma, and white leather toilet seat covers. And I thought our family packed a lot in our minivan when we go on vacation. But uh, her brief visit cost $20 million. $20 million. Yancey then writes this. In meek contrast, God's visit to earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. A mule could have stepped on him. What kind of a God chooses to come to earth in this fashion? It is totally unexpected. This is our king? Absolutely. From his birth, Jesus embraced Humility, a life that is not concerned about image, about reputation, about impressing other people. <clears throat> and how radically different from the Greek worldview, right? How radically different where the Greek gods battled over who would have power. Jesus fully embraced humility, which raises the question, so what? I mean, what, what difference does this make to the Greeks first hearing this? What difference does this make to us? Is this really that big of a deal? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I'll, let me just ask a question. What kind of leader do you prefer to follow? A leader who is insecure, power hungry, always having to prove that they're right, always having to prove that they're in charge? Or do you prefer to follow a leader who is absolutely secure in their identity? A leader who isn't trying to vie for power and to be the center of attention, but is actually more focused on others than on themselves. Which of those leaders do you prefer to follow? I mean, we all know the answer to that question. There is something within all of us that is drawn to authentic humility. And Jesus embodies it in a way the world has never seen. I mean, now, you know, now there are books being written about the importance of humility and all that. I mean, Jesus was humble before it was cool to be humble. I mean, in that day and age, it was not cool to be humble if you were a leader. 
was not. It was a sign of weakness. Jesus totally uh, reoriented that. I mean, we don't expect that God coming to earth would choose, that he would choose to do so in this way. I mean, no one, and think about this, no one in their right mind would have written a script like this. I mean, seriously, no one would have written a script like this. An incarnation that was so humble, that was so intimate, that was so accessible, that was so human. But Jesus did come in this way. Erase that image of God being distant up on a cloud somewhere and realize that he was laid as a baby in our undeserving arms. Look into the face of that baby. How does that impact your perception of God? Well, the second unexpected characteristic of Jesus that we see in this passage is the heart of Jesus, the heart of Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, the gods of Greek mythology were powerful and yet typically distant, manipulative, uncaring, right? And so, so with that in mind, let's look at what Luke describes next in the narrative. <clears throat> and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. So what do we immediately notice here about this God? compared to Greek mythology gods. He cares about us. I mean, he cares about us. His first response to the shepherds was, don't be afraid. I mean, he, he recognizes the fear that the shepherds felt, and he, he sent his angels to speak to that, not, not in an angry, vindictive way, but in a caring, compassionate, disarming way. And this, this compassion carries over into the message itself. The angel says, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Notice, this God is for us. He is for us. He is orchestrating something good on our behalf, something that benefits us and blesses us. He is not distant. He is not uncaring. Nor is he selective. He's not selective like the Greek gods were. I mean, the angel says here that this is good news, that this good news is for all the people. It's for everyone, including shepherds. <laughs> now, in our Christ Christmas carols, you know, in our nativity sets and all that, we have sort of glorified the shepherd role. But the reality is shepherds in that day were despised by most people in society. They were poor. They were untrustworthy. They were unwashed, living outside the city. They were outsiders in every sense of the word, spiritually, economically, socially. And yet here we see God sending his angels not to the wealthy, not to the powerful, not to the moral, not to the, to, to the temple priests. No, no, no. He sends his angels to shepherds of all people 
to let them know about the birth of Jesus. This is totally unexpected. It is totally unexpected. And yet it is very much a reflection of God's heart. He doesn't play favorites. He doesn't play favorites. He isn't interested in focusing only on those whom society deems as being successful. He is for all of us. He is for all of us. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? You know, I'm guessing that most all of us here at various times in our lives, we have felt unworthy of God's attention because of who we are or because of what we've done. Our shame hovers over us like a wet blanket. In those moments, we need to remember that God's heart is for all people, including outsiders, failures, those who have been rejected, the broken, the needy, the poor. He is for us, all of us. He is for us. Now, now, this being for us goes way beyond simply the announcing of, of this, the birth of Jesus to a bunch of shepherds. It goes to the heart of the message that the angel brings. The angel describes this message as good news. Good news. I bring you good news, right? That word can also be translated gospel. The word gospel literally means good news. It is good news. News, think about this, news refers to something that has actually happened, right? Right? It's not news if it hasn't happened. So this is good news. It's not a good bedtime story. It's not a good, good tall tale. It's not a good fantasy. It is news, a factual historical account. This baby has actually been born. This is something that, is, that has happened. So what difference would a baby born in Bethlehem make to these shepherds and to us? Well, the angel tells us, today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is a radically, totally unexpected message for humanity. And here's why. Most of humanity, most every person, most of humanity, including the Greeks initially hearing this or reading Luke's words, and including people today, most of humanity, we, we have a particular perspective. Most people have a particular perspective on how we relate to God or gods. The basic idea is that God is up there. He's distant. He's holy. And in order for us to get to him, in order for us to experience his blessing, we kind of know we, we don't ever act together completely. So in order for us to get to him, to, to get his blessing, his favor, we have to do something to, to appease him. So for the Greeks in that day, this appeasing involved having temples. They would build temples and they would offer sacrifices to their gods to try and get a blessing and on their crops or whatever. Today, this appeasing, it still happens. It just takes a different form. I mean, many people today believe that in order to be in a relationship with God, you know, in order to, to, to have that happen, to be in a relationship with God, we, we have to try to be good, go to church, Follow the golden rule. Be nice to your neighbor. I mean, ha have you ever felt that way? We, we have a list in our mind of, of good works, right? These things that Christians are supposed to do. We have in our mind these, these lists of good works. And we believe that if we do those things fairly well, fairly consistently, God will accept us. Now, there is a word for this perspective. There's a word for this perspective. The word is religion. Religion. See, religion says... 
if I do certain things, if I jump through the right spiritual hoops, if I say the right prayers and I don't mess up too bad, God will accept me. In other words, my status before God is dependent upon what I do. This is the perspective of many people. This is the perspective of pretty much all world religions. I was talking with a, a Muslim friend the other day, and this is exactly what he said to me. He wants to please God, which is a very noble desire. And he believes that God's acceptance of him is dependent upon how well he does certain things, how well he treats people and, and follows these things. Whether Jews or Greeks or Muslims or Mormons, I mean, even some faithful church-going people, the perspective is pretty much the same. The list may change, but the perspective is, is pretty much the same. Here's what you and I must do to earn God's favor. Here's what you have to do in order to earn God's acceptance. I mean, this is the prevailing view amongst, among most people back then when Luke was initially writing, and it's the prevailing view among most people today, which is what makes the angel's message to us so radical, so unexpected, because the angel doesn't say, today in the town of David, a teacher has been born to you. Today in the town of David, a leader has been born to you. And when he grows up, you need to try really hard to follow him. And if you do, God will accept you. No, no, no. That's not what he says. The message is clear. Today, a Savior has been born to you. The use of the word Savior is very deliberate and, and, and radical because it means that we as humans need saving. We don't need just a, a slightly tweaked spiritual to-do list or a revised list of moral behaviors or commandments to follow or a new set of rules to live by. No, 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 no. We need saving. Well, saving from what? Our sin. Our sin. Our brokenness. Uh, that's what separates us from God. And we cannot fix this. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot do enough good things to earn his blessing and favor. No, 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 no. This baby that has been born, has been, that, that's been sent to us, he's been sent to us to save us. Not just to lead us, to save us. As I mentioned a moment ago, the instinctive posture of the human heart is to believe that we can save ourselves. That's just the, the, that's the, the instinctive posture of the human heart, to save ourselves. Even church-going people, deep down, what we really believe is that we've got to save ourselves. And I, 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 um, I think one of the most powerful diagnostic questions that we can ask people or we can ask ourselves in terms of what, you know, this whole question that we're talking about here, here here's, here's the diagnostic question. If you were to die today and you were to stand before God, and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? So if you were to die today and you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Now think, think about that for a moment. What would you say? What would you say? See, would your answer be, I tried really hard to be a good person. I sincerely tried to follow you. I went to church. I loved my children well. What would you say? 
See, however a person answers that question reveals what they're trusting in to save them. So if our answer is about anything we've done, it shows that we're trusting in our own effort to get to God. And most people believe that's good enough. Just be sincere, trying hard, that that's enough to get you to God, which, which makes what Luke is reporting here all the more radical because the angel is declaring that that's not good enough. The angel is declaring that all of us need saving and that Jesus is the one given to us to be that Savior. That Jesus will grow up and one day lay down his life for us on the cross, shedding his blood as the perfect and final sacrifice for our sins. I mean, when you think about it, this really is incredible news for anyone who admits they need saving. It reveals a God who, unlike the mythological gods like Zeus or Apollo or Athena or whatever, a God who is willing to actually come to us and give his life for us to save us. You see, when, when you receive this gift of Jesus' sacrifice, you don't have to strive to appease God. You don't have to try and earn his favor or blessing. It is given to you permanently. His favor, his blessing, his love are given to you permanently. In Christ, you are loved and accepted completely by God. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Now, now, now here's, here's a critical question. Because I think, we're, oh, yeah, yeah, I know the gospel. Some of us, yeah, of course. And, 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 and it's true. But here's the question. Are we living in the reality of this gospel? And this is amazing news here, but are we living in the reality of this gospel? I didn't ask if we knew the Christmas story. Didn't ask that. I, I didn't even ask if we believe in Jesus. My question is, are we living in and experiencing the fullness of this unexpected good news that Jesus um, came for us? Are we living in the reality of that? <clears throat> well, how can we answer that question? How do we know? Well, the angel tells us. In this passage, there are two very specific things that are a gauge to measure how fully we're embracing the good news of the gospel. The first measurement is joy. Joy, great joy. The angel says, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. See, one of the indicators of the extent to which we are living in the gospel. Again, I'm not talking about whether we've accepted Jesus. or I'm, talking, I'm beyond that here. I'm talking about are we living it? One of the indicators of whether we're living in the gospel is our level of joy. Are we a joyful people? Are we filled with great joy? Now, you may say, how can I be joyful? My marriage is in shambles. My kid isn't walking with God. My house is in foreclosure. I'm failing in school. My doctor just told me I have cancer. And, and, and it's not just our personal problems. Have you read the newspaper lately? The atrocities of ISIS, the uncertainty of the global economy, the devastation of floods and, and tornadoes. Are you saying that we can have joy in the midst of all of that? That's exactly what the angel's saying here. Great joy, no matter what your circumstances. Why? Because you have a God who has come near to you in the person of Jesus. 
you have a God who is for you, choosing to pay the penalty for your sin. You have a God who is all-powerful, who is sovereign, a God who loves you and is with you and will never leave you or forsake you, a God who is at work in you, molding you into the image of his son, Jesus. When we realize all that is ours in Jesus, it will fill us with deep, abiding joy, even in the most difficult of circumstances. So that sounds good, you know, that would be great, but, but the question is, why do we struggle? Why do we struggle to experience this kind of joy? I think there's one primary reason that we struggle. It's because we're trying to find our joy in other things. That's why we're missing the joy of the gospel. We're trying to find our joy in other things, in our success, in our relationships, in our entertainment, in the approval of other people, in our finances, in our circumstances, none of which will bring joy. None of those things will bring true joy. True joy is found in Jesus. I love the response of the shepherds after they go to see Jesus. Luke tells us in verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Great joy in the midst of not-so-great circumstances. Why? Because they'd encountered Jesus, the Savior. True joy is found in Jesus. The second measurement as to how fully we are experiencing and embracing this good news and living in the reality of this good news, the second measurement is peace. Peace. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace. Biblically speaking, the word peace is such an amazing word. In the, in the Old Testament Hebrew, the word for peace is shalom. And it speaks of, it's not just a, a peace of mind, but it speaks of a whole-bodied peace. Shalom, the blessing of living uh, at peace with ourselves. The blessing of living at peace with others. The blessing of living at peace with God. It speaks, shalom speaks of this wonderful place of, of contentment, of, of rest. Not striving, not bickering, not running after all the world has to offer us. I mean, what, what's being described here is a whole-bodied peace. It's a posture of the soul and the body. It's a, it's a place of absolute rest. And the message of the angel is that the gospel offers us this peace, this kind of peace. So how do we embrace this more fully? Well, we'll think about this. Where does a lack of peace come from? Where does a lack of peace come from? When we feel anxious or fearful about certain things, what's really going on in our soul? We're placing our trust in something other than God. Right? I mean, that's, that's what's happening. When we're feeling anxious, when we're feeling fearful, what's really going on is we're placing our trust in something other than God. We're placing our trust in our ability to manage things. We're placing our trust in our ability to make life secure and safe. In other words, we're trying to be God. That's the problem. <laughs> we're trying to be God. We're trying to be the one in charge. That, that is a very non-gospel way of living. Because remember the focus of the gospel? 
what God has done for us in Jesus. The gospel is all about us trusting in what God has done. The gospel is all about us resting in what Christ has done. When we do that, peace is a natural byproduct in every facet of our lives. So rather than worrying about our circumstances, our problems, I can trust that God has my back. He has my front, that God is with me. He loves me, that he's got this. When I'm in conflict about my relational world, when I'm in conflict with another person and I'm not experiencing peace in that relationship, the gospel frees me to not have to be right, to not have to win an argument. I can humble myself because Jesus humbled himself for me. You see, I I can experience peace in my relationships because of Jesus coming to earth as Savior. Joy and peace. I mean, these are two very easily measured ways of examining the level to which you and I are actually living in the unexpected good news of Jesus coming to earth. Are we living in this reality? Didn't ask if we believed it. Are we living in it? Some of us, maybe, maybe all of us here, need a recalibration of our soul today. We need our hearts filled afresh with the good news that Jesus is for us. He is not a God of Greek mythology, distant, uncaring, volatile. No, no, no. He is a God who came here, who came near to you and me. At our worst, at our dirtiest, our smelliest, when we were strangers, when we were outcasts, thumbing our nose at God, he came and gave his life on the cross for you and me. He is a God who will never leave us, a God who will never forsake us, whose love we don't have to earn, but who instead fills us with his presence. A God who invites us to trust him and to find our joy in him. When he is at the center of our souls, great peace and great joy will be the result. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word and your presence here and you're, you're speaking to us. And we pray that you'd continue to speak to us as we respond to your word. This isn't just about getting information. We want to respond to your word. God, we are so grateful for your heart, Jesus, that you came as Savior. You came for us. And I, I want to give just a couple of invitations here in response to that. But there may be some of you here, I just, that, that question I asked before, If you were to die today, if you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Your answer, and as you thought about that, your answer was about what you have done. I've tried, been a good person, tried to go to church, tried to be all the follow the golden rule. If your answer was about what you've done, it means you've not received the gift Jesus offers you. The gift of his love and his forgiveness and his life. You don't have to work for that. It's a gift you receive. And so if there may be some of you here 
and you know in your heart you have not received this gift or you're not sure and you want to make sure, I want to lead you in a prayer right now where you can open your heart to Jesus. You can receive him as Savior. So if that's the desire of your heart, pray along with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I acknowledge that you are holy, you are perfect, and I'm not. I'm se- I, I realize I'm, I'm sinful. I'm separated from you. And I don't want to be separated from you. And I acknowledge that I have perhaps thought there are things I could do to earn my way to you, but I realize now it's impossible. The chasm is too large. There's nothing I can do to get to you, but you came to me. You sent your son Jesus to be Savior, to be my Savior. By dying on the cross for my sin. You di- Jesus, you died in my place. You took the hit I should have paid, the penalty I should have paid. And I choose right now to place my trust in you alone, Jesus. I bring you my failures and my fears and my doubts, my questions, all of me. And I place it on you, your shoulders. And I now receive you into my life. Through the presence of your spirit, come live in me. Forgive my sin, all of it, past, present, and even the sins I haven't committed yet, all of it forgiven. And come change me from the inside out. Through the presence of your spirit. God, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them grow in their relationship with you to grow in their relationship with you. Well, for the rest here, you you who have placed your faith in Jesus, you know Jesus, you know the gospel, but are you living in the fullness of that? I want to just pray, first of all, this area of joy. What I pray, I pray for each one of us here. God, we're all guilty of this. We all do this, where we, we try to find joy, our ultimate joy in other things. And our own success or what other people think of us or our children's success or, 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 or whatever it is, we place our joy in other things. It doesn't work. So Jesus, right now, we want to place our joy in you. Our Savior, who, the God who is for us and with us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would pour out joy in this place. You would be stirring our hearts with joy. I pray for those in in, in difficult circumstances. I pray that you would be pouring out abundant joy upon them right now. Let them know how much you love them. Joy bubbling forth from within us through the presence of your spirit. I pray for that now. More joy as we fix our eyes on you, Jesus. And I want to pray as well for more peace. God, for those who right now are just feel overcome with fear and anxiety. God, I pray for each one of us when fear arises, we would realize we're trusting in something other than you. As I pray, you would help us trust you with our family, trust you with our future, with our finances, to trust you because you are trustworthy. 
And Lord, I know there are some here that are thinking, oh, yeah, I've trusted God before and, and look what happened. Lord, I, I just pray you would help us realize that you are orchestrating things. You are working in our circumstances, even when things don't seem like they're working the way we want them to. You are still trustworthy. You gave your son to die on a cross for us. We can trust you. And so we pray for that. I pray for that right now in all of our hearts to lay before you our families, our lives, our health, our finances, every part of us, and just to, to trust you, Jesus, and that you would be pouring out peace, shalom peace as a result, humility in our hearts and our relationships, healing and life. So we love you, Lord. Thank you for being such an amazing Savior. Thank you, Lord. We get to respond to this amazing Savior by worshiping him for the remainder of the service here. So why don't we stand as the worship team leads us. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Set us free now to worship you, to respond to this truth, these truths with joy and with peace, with worship and praise in you. Thank you, Lord.